If you take your Bibles and join me in Isaiah, please. The book of Isaiah for our study this morning. I'm going to be in Isaiah chapter 7 as we talk about a Christmas story here, Isaiah 7. While you turn there, I want to thank you so very, very much for your kindness. For so many of you just this morning looking at me with a quizzical look, kind of like, and not saying a word. But then there was a couple of you who were a little bit more, more honest and said, what are you wearing for glasses? In fact, one of the little kids said to me when I saw him in the foyer, and said, what happened to you? <laughs> so my glasses broke this week. Actually, it was Friday, right before I was headed out on a call. I was cleaning them, and the bow just uh, the, right here, the nose piece, snapped in half. So we went to the eye doctors, and because they were so old, they couldn't find any other frame that I could take the same lens, put in, so I had to order. But in the meantime, they said we found one frame. (laughs) What do you think? It's Christmassy. Some of you are very so kind as well. Last Sunday, I told you a story about when I was out walking, and uh, that I, on my walk, that I had fallen on the sidewalk. And that I responded by laying there for a little bit, but then after a few seconds I thought, somebody might have seen me. So I jumped up real quick after nothing was broken. And several of you were so kind to come up in true confessions to say, I did the same thing. It happened to me. Well, one of you was even kinder. We got home the other day, and somebody <laughs> brought, us, brought me a cane. So sweet of you, from a friend. Yeah, yeah. Merry Christmas. We are getting older. Use this in your walk so you don't fall again. May God bless you. Thank you. I am thrilled. (laughs) I can't tell you how excited this makes me. What a blessing to have dear friends. Speaking of walking, sometimes when we go out walking, are there places that you avoid? If you were to go out for a walk? I mean, some of you would definitely avoid going to a cemetery. Some of you would avoid those dark, wooded areas. Some of you would avoid certain parts of town and wouldn't walk in them. And I was thinking about that when I was on a walk the other night with my flashlight. I was on a walk and thinking about, boy, there are certain areas, certain times that I want to be careful where I'm walking. And yet Jesus Christ leaves the throne of heaven and comes down to walk amongst men. When it's talking about, one of the passages says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that through his poverty you and I might become rich. It's amazing that he would come and walk in this earth, walk in the muck and the mire, because he loved us that very much. There's lots of prophecies that talk about it. There's lots of verses that tell us about, you know, Jesus, where he would be born, and the wise men coming. But there's one prophecy that I haven't looked at for a long time in the sense of preaching on it that I wanted to focus in on. It's a prophecy that's given in Isaiah chapter 7. It is then quoted in Matthew chapter 1. It's one that you're very familiar with. You hear about it. It's usually given and discussed and debated when there's that comment made in this verse. You're in, you're in Isaiah, so let me point it out to you. Verse, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. 
Now, the reason that many of us know this prophecy is because this is a debated uh, passage. This is one that there's a lot of discussion. In fact, the critics, the skeptics, those who would deny our Lord and Savior and say that he wasn't deity, or they would say that there was false information given. This is one of the passages they're going to run to. And they're going to say, it says that there's a a virgin that's going to conceive, and that's an impossibility. And some of them will point out this to you. They will point out that idea that if you go back into Isaiah, the word for a virgin is the word Alma. That's the Hebrew word. And that that word means a young woman. Could be unmarried or just recently married young woman, Alma. And therefore, this prophecy doesn't really mean that there was a virgin that conceived. It wasn't something miraculous. All it means is a young lady who could have conceived out of wedlock or right after she got married. And they'll make a big issue that Jesus was not virgin born. He wasn't deity. Then you and I would respond this way. We'd say, yes, but the idea that's true, Alma, could mean a virgin or it could be a young woman that is a fact. It could be both, okay, or either. But when it's quoted in the New Testament, when the Spirit of God leads Matthew to write, he makes it very clear that it is a virgin because he uses the word parthenos, which is only the idea of a virgin. And so we've, discussed, we've examined that passage, we've explained that passage, and we've responded to those who would criticize our faith. But there's much more in Isaiah 7. The time that it is given, the statement is made, the prophecy is given in the midst of something fascinating that is going on in Isaiah 7. But yet many of us have never dug deeper into it. And by not digging deeper into the text, when the prophecy was given, we don't get the major truth. It wasn't given to debate. The passage was given to help us out, to help us to walk with the Lord, to become closer to him. What is the major lesson in Isaiah 7? Well, it surrounds the sign that is given. And it's fascinating for you and me to just say, okay, let's do a little bit of background study. Let's find out a little bit about Isaiah 7. Let's get some facts. Well, we know this. We know that at the time that it was given was 730 years before Christ came. Well, if he came around 4, 5, 6 BC, we're giving you rough figures. 725 years. Before Jesus is born, this statement is made. That's the time that Isaiah speaks. We know that when Isaiah said this, now with our Bible knowledge, be able to look back, we know that when he said it, there was an immediate fulfillment And then there was a distant fulfillment, a double fulfillment out of the same prophecy. One for Isaiah's time to the king that he was speaking to. One that is quoted and said, it's the king, Jesus Christ, coming to be born of a virgin. So there's a dual application of this verse. Dual time period, dual prophecies, dual fulfillment of when it happened. It's very clearly stated that this is a sign this idea of this young woman giving, getting, uh, becoming pregnant and then delivering a child. That this was a sign that God was still there. Emmanuel. God with us. Not only for the, for the thought of Jesus Christ, but even at that moment. Those people, those Jews who heard this the very first time, they needed to be reminded, Emmanuel. God is with us. God still cares for us. God hasn't forsaken us. Both of these, this prophecy has comments about two boys. 
One who was born back then in that 730 era. One who was born in the manger that we know as Jesus Christ. Both of them are called Emmanuel. It doesn't mean they're both divine. But they both had that title. That name was given to remind people God with us. We know this as well, that both births were unusual. There were going to be something different about, that would, about the birth of the, of the child, the boy Emmanuel, back in Isaiah 7, that would catch people's attention. Well, we all know, we all know what the attention catcher was with the birth of Christ. Mary, the virgin, giving birth. But exactly what was happening at the time when Isaiah says, hey, King Ahaz, there's going to be a boy born here. He's going to be born soon. What was it? There's there's some information there that we need to discuss here in the next few moments. But it was going to be a birth. It was going to be a happenstance that would catch the attention as a sign that God is still with us. Just to help the people out. So all this is about God showing his ongoing commitment to the human race where God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to trust in me. I want you Jews back in Isaiah 7, I want you to trust me. I'm going to do something. There's going to be a sign. There's going to be a boy born. His mom's going to call him Emmanuel, that God is with us. And it's true. King Ahaz, Isaiah saying, God is with us. You need to trust him. So we have that information of what's going on. But to make sense out of it, let me give you the background of Isaiah 7. Let's set up the scene of what is happening. You're there. You're living in that time period. You're living in the land of Judah. You're part of the southern tribes. You have cousins who are in the northern ten tribes who have formed a new nation decades before called Israel. And so you have, you have up north the Israelites. You have down here the Judites. Those who are still following David's descendants as kings. But you all remember that the northern kingdoms, they have a whole new set of kings, not David's ancestors. They even started their own temple. They are, they are going off into heresy. And at the time, Ahaz, one of David's great-great-grandchildren, he is on the throne. He's the son of Hezekiah. You've heard about him. You've read about him. He's the king of the southern kingdom. And his dad was a pretty good king. But Ahaz is struggling. He doesn't have as much faith in God anymore. And so the prophet's going to come to him because what has happened is the northern kingdom of the ten tribes that, that have formed a new kingdom, they and another country, Syria, their kings have gotten together. And they are going to attack the southern kingdom. They want to get Jerusalem. They want to get the temple gold. They want to get all, the, all those, those rich treasures there. And so you have the two kings, Reason and Pekah, each leading their separate little countries. They are coming down and they're invading the southern kingdom. It's gotten to be really bad. The, the people, if we were there living in Jerusalem, we're fearful. We, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Because so far our army has been beaten. Our army has, has been defeated by these two other kings that are invading, that are threatening us. They have killed 120,000 of our soldiers. That's a lot of our sons. That's a lot of our brothers or parents, dads, who have been killed. They have also taken many of our cousins living in the countryside as captives. The estimate is 200,000 have been put into slavery. So most all of us know somebody Somebody outside of Jerusalem who has been affected by this invasion. And we know that we're in trouble because they are camping outside the door of Jerusalem. 
outside the gates. And they're coming for us. And our king, Ahaz, he doesn't know what to do. But he has an idea. He has, he has, a, he has a plan. The king has sent a text, sent a cable, done something, and contacted the Assyrians, a major empire farther east. He's contacted them and said, hey, come and help us. We need your help. He hasn't turned to the Egyptians, but he turned to the Assyrians, who are even more godless. And he said, I will pay you if you come and you help us fight against these two kings that are nearer us. In fact, I will give you all the silver out of the temple. I'll strip out the temple walls. I'll strip out the temple items. And we'll pay you to come and help us out. So that's what the plan is. The king has turned to a godless, another king, an enemy, a ruthless enemy, and said, become my ally. Help me out. It is at that moment that God sends Isaiah. Not just Isaiah, but he says, take your son, Shir Jashub, whose name means a remnant shall be saved. He says, you two, go, and you meet the king. You meet him outside the city at one of the aqueducts where he's going to be doing some type of in, uh, planning and preparing for the invasion, getting, getting water stored up. And what, you want, what I want you to do is like, I want you, Isaiah, to go and talk to Ahaz. And I want you to warn him that he ought not to have this alliance with Assyria. I want you to remind him about God with us, about Emmanuel. I want you to encourage him to trust me in this battle. And so we read some of what's happening here. That he's saying to him in these verses the idea of don't turn elsewhere. Let, let me just read for you what the comments are. He's in verse 4. Isaiah, this is what you say to Ahaz. Take heed, quiet. Calm yourself down. Stop fearing. Neither become faint-hearted for the two tails of these are smoking firebrands. In other words, these two men who are leading their armies against you, they're not a flaming fire. They're just like smoking embers in reality. For the fierce anger of reason of Syria and the son of Ramaliah, because of Syria, Ephraim, that is the northern tribes, talking at times, uh, Israel, the ten tribes, tribes are called Ephraim because it was the largest of the ten. He says, they have taken evil counsel against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and vex it. Let us make a breach therein for us and set our own king in the midst of it, even the son of Tabiel. But thus saith the Lord God, it shall not come to pass. It shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass, for the head of of Syria is Damascus, the head of Damascus is reason, and within 65 years Ephraim shall be totally broken. It won't even be a nation anymore. It shall not be a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. And if you will not believe me, if you will not trust me, Ahaz, surely you shall not last very long. You shall not be established. Very clear. Okay? And in fact, if you jump down to verse 16, he says, Before the child shall know to refuse evil, before he's weaned basically, and, cho- and chooses the good land that you abhor, those kings will be forsaken. Within just a couple of years, those two kings are going to be destroyed, is the idea. Trust me. I've got a better plan than you. And in fact, those kingdoms in the northern, in 65 years, they're not even going to be a problem to you. Syria and Israel are going to be off the map. Which, by the way, happens. That's, that's exactly what happens. But, he says, if you don't believe me, Ahaz, if you are fearful, 
if you turn to the king of Assyria, you're not going to last long either. Trust me. And then he goes on, he says, by the way, just to prove this, ask for a sign. Ask God to give you some, some type of assurance, some type of something. In fact, he tells him, you can ask for any sign. He goes on, he says, ask for a sign, verse 11, whether it be in the depths or in the heights, anything you want. You ask for the sun to go backwards, I'll make it go backwards, just to prove that I'm, in, I'm with you. Ask for any sign. You want the water to turn colors, I'll turn the water's color. You do, you do ask for anything, and I'm here, I'm going to show you that I'm with you. I'm God, I'm Emmanuel, trust me. Well, King Ahaz is listening to the speech, and he's not convinced. So he responds in this next verse. He says, oh, I wouldn't dare ask a sign of God. Well, that sounds pretty nice. That sounds pretty spiritual. Because Deuteronomy, Jesus quoted, remember when Jesus was tempted, tempted, he says, you shall not tempt the Lord thy God. And so for some who read this, they say, well, Ahaz, he's doing right. He's not asking for a sign. But wait a minute, God told him to ask for a sign. God said, do it, ask for something. So it wouldn't be wrong for him to have a sign. Besides, if he asks for a sign and God does it, what does Ahaz have to do? He has to listen to the prophet. He has to, he has to then acknowledge that what Isaiah is saying is true. But he says, I'm not going to ask for a sign. I don't want to hear anymore, in other words. I don't want to hear you speak anymore. My mind is made up. I'm going to trust the Assyrians, not God. And so then the prophet responds to him. And the prophet says, makes these comments to him as he says in the next verse, he says, Hear now, O house of David, you who are David's descendant, in verse 13, it is, is it a small thing for you to weary men? Yeah, that's true. You're the king. It's a small thing for you to ignore people. To just, the weary has the idea of not listen to. That they keep on talking, but it's falling on deaf ears. It's a small thing for you to do that. But you're going to do that to God? You're going you're to have God speak to you and you're going to ignore him? Ahaz, how can you do that? The prophet's rebuking him. The prophet's challenging him. Trust in God, trust in God. And then the prophet goes on and says, you didn't ask for it, but I'm gonna, God's going to give you a sign anyway. That's verse 14. That's the sign that he says, what's going to happen is you're going to see this. You're going to find this is going to happen in your court. Somebody in your court, somewhere he goes on, he says, some unmarried young lady, unmarried at the time of this prophecy, unmarried even to the point that she delivers and there's a child out of wedlock? I'm not sure all the details. Nobody is. But at the time of the prophecy, somebody that you don't expect is going to be pregnant here pretty soon. And this gal is going to bear a son. Now, folk, that doesn't mean a whole lot to us anymore because we predict, we do revealing parties. We are so knowledgeable in a society medically that we can pretty much figure out boy or girl. But this is given before there is any ultrasound. This is given in a time where you didn't know. And he says, there's going to be somebody you know, daughter, relative, 
she's going to bear a child and the child's going to be a boy. And this boy, when he comes, the mom's going to call the boy Emmanuel, God with us. And before this boy even becomes weaned, before he's able to choose right and wrong, before he's that old, let's put two years, okay, because that's the time frame that fits this story anyway. Before that happens, Reason and Pika are going to be beaten. This is God's sign to you. Somebody close to you is bearing a child. It's a boy. They're going to call me Manuel, and you'll see the kings, the kings defeated because God is with you. God has not forsaken. And then he goes on in the next part of the chapter and says, but if you don't listen to me, here's what's going to happen. The Assyrians are going to come. They're going to help you. And when they see all the silver that you bring out of the temple to pay them, they're going to want more. And they're going to, and they're going to invade your temple. And they're going, to, uh, they're going to devastate your land. Judah will come to a point where you read in the next few verses where it talks about just the cattle in the fields. And you and I read that and say, that's great, they can graze. That's not great. That means there's going to come to a point that there's no crops growing. The only thing in the fields are the cattle. And why are they in the fields? Because they're starving like the rest of you. It talks in the passage about the razor will be put to your head. Now that doesn't mean much to us, but back in Bible days, if you wanted to shave, uh, shame somebody, you would shave their head. And he's saying that's what they're going to do to you men. They're going to shave your head and, he says, all the hair on your body. He goes on, he talks about the only thing you're going to have left is the honey and the curds. That is, you're not even going to have a lot of the grapes anymore. You're going to just have to get by with what little milk you have, and a lot of it's going to spoil. And so you're going to be in desperate straits if you don't trust. That was given. Ahaz doesn't listen, and they suffer all of those things. But the message in this whole thing was, God is with us. Ahaz, people of Jerusalem, don't panic. Don't panic when you see that there's a national calamity at hand. God is with us. Now our national calamities at hand aren't the same thing as the Jews were experiencing. But at moments do we feel national calamity? At moments do we feel like the economy is unsettled? Do we feel like things are really weird? God is still with us. Don't panic. The message is trust in the Lord your God. Now you and I, we advance hundreds of years from what Isaiah was speaking. We go all the way from that prophecy that was given in 730 and we are living in when a God grabs that same prophecy and says, here is a message to people in modern time. To the Jews in Jesus' day and all those who followed Jesus after that. The message is, there's a sign. A virgin shall conceive. She will bring forth a boy, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. Now we're dealing with Jesus Christ. Oh yeah, you and I know. We know what it means, virgin birth. We understand that. Miraculous birth. That's a good thing. But there's more to it. The message given to Joseph at the night that this is given, Joseph is in a panic Joseph has his own calamity. Joseph is in a situation where he doesn't know what end is up anymore. Should he divorce Mary? 
Should he leave or should he just... His own life is in upheaval. And God is saying the same message to him on a personal level. Trust the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Emmanuel, God is with us. The Jews are in upheaval. They don't even have their independence as a nation. They are under Roman domination. Things are rough and rugged for the Jewish people. And the message to them is, Emmanuel is arriving. God is with us. Trust in the Lord. And so the much more meaning is for you and me to remember Emmanuel. What does it mean besides a song that we sing and we sing of Emmanuel? What does it mean for us this Christmas when we say Emmanuel? We read it on our cards. We sing it in a sermon. We hear special music. What should it say to us? It should say this, number one. It should say God is with us in the flesh. Don't forget about it. God is with us in the flesh. I don't even know how to explain this. I don't even know how to get this across to you. I fear that as I say it, it's just ho-hum-drum. We know it, we see it, we've read it, we believe it, but we're just going to continue doing what we normally do. Nothing, not much impact. But when we pause and think what it means, what is that idea that God is with us in the flesh, that he came from heaven? It's an amazing truth that God, as I started off saying, would leave heaven and come down to this earth and walk amongst men. Is he walking amongst us right now physically like he did? No, but he was here. He was here in the flesh. He spoke. He gave us his message. He did his work. He gave us promises that he's coming back again in the flesh. And it should just absolutely thrill our hearts and give us hope to trust that God is in the flesh. There was one preacher who said that he struggled with it, like I do. He struggled with how this made sense. But he said one time there was an experience that helped him to really understand it deeper. He was in charge now as a young, young minister. He was in charge of their church's orphanage. And what had happened at that time is he had grown up in a broken home. He had been in a home himself where he was abused by his parents, taken out of the home and put into a church home, an orphanage where he was raised. So he knew what that was like. And now, after he had given his life to the Lord, he was given this assignment. You are going to be the one who is leading this orphanage, this children's home, for kids whose parents are gone, or you were kids who were taken from their parents because of their battles. What's happening? Sorry for that. Now I have to back up and start all over because I forgot <laughs> where I stopped. So with that in mind, I want to thank you this morning for being so kind, for not saying the things that could be said this morning. And I want to talk about somebody who gave me the... If I walk back and forth... I will remember where I was. <laughs> this young man got an assignment. 
even though he had experienced, he was in charge now as a minister of this orphanage. And he talked about what had happened, that in that experience there was one child. He, he never had this problem before. He was very good with it. Where he could take in children who come in, he could help them to calm down, he could help them to just relate to the others. Well, it's approaching Christmas. In fact, it was Christmas Eve. And the police brought a child in that said that this little boy, this preschooler, he needed to get out of his parents' home even on Christmas Eve. It was that serious. The little boy came in, and you could tell that that boy was terrified, absolutely terrified of big people. And so the minister took that little boy, spoke to him kindly, softly, and brought that boy up to the boy's room where there was a number of bunk beds. And he told the little boy, he can put his suitcase here, and here's a dresser, he can put some of his stuff there, and I'll come back and get you. Otherwise, you can just come down to supper at the bottom of the stairs. We're going to have supper. Come and join us. It's our Christmas supper. He went downstairs, and he got occupied with the other kids who were in the orphanage. And after quite a bit of time, he realized, oh, that little kid... The newcomer, he he didn't come down. So he ran upstairs to see where the little boy was, and he couldn't find him. He looked through the room, the closets, he couldn't find him. Finally, he found the little guy underneath a bed. Here he was under the bed, all the way in the corner. And the minister said, you know, I'm going to go into my mode of calm and cool, and I will will be able, I've never failed in calming a child down. So he got... If I get down, I'm not getting up. Okay. So he got down, and he's coaxing this little boy, and he's talking to them, speaking smooth, kind words, calm words, and the little boy won't come out. The little boy is terrified. He's crying. He spoke some more. So he reverted to what most of us do, bribery. And he's bribing the little boy with food, the presents they're going to open. The little boy is still there, won't come out, won't come out. And the man is thinking to himself, well, maybe I just need to have tough love. I need to be firm and reach in and grab the little boy. But with this guy, that's probably not the wise thing to do. So instead, he got down even further. I am not doing that. (laughs) He got down even further and he crawled underneath the bed. And he just got underneath. He said it was so tight. The springs were clawing at his clothes. He got scratched. But he said, I got underneath there and I just laid there by the little boy. I didn't say anything. Didn't talk. And after what seemed like an eternity, he said, I just started telling this little boy what it felt like when I was a little boy. What I felt like when my parents hurt me. What I felt like when I've, I was hungry and I was neglected and I was deserted. He said, I told my story to myself. I didn't know if the kid was listening. And after a while, he says, when I was done, there was a long pause. He said, I felt I was like I was underneath there for hours. I know I missed my supper. And it was, but it felt like it was a long time. And then I felt his hand reach for mine. We laid there, he said, for another extended period of time. And finally, the little boy said, I'll eat with you if you sit with me. He said, I crawled out from under the bed. The little boy just stayed close to me the entire night, the next day. But over a period of time, he was able to calm down and start trusting. 
When we say Emmanuel, Jesus has crawled under the bed with us. Jesus has come and stooped to experience what we experience. To be with us. To be by us. That's Emmanuel. That's what Jesus Christ did for you and me. That's why we have the message of Emmanuel, trust him. He cares. He cares. He loves. But then we have to go a step further and say Emmanuel means that he came not only to just help us in our problems and struggles, which we'll reverse back to in a moment, but he came to address our crises. We already told you about Ahaz's crises and the Jewish people. We already told you about Joseph's crises of decision. But when Emmanuel came in the flesh, when Jesus came, he was dealing with a far greater crisis. Do you remember what Scripture says? Why he came in the flesh? It says to save his people from their sins. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1 where this passage is quoted, to save his people from their sins. Do you remember what Jesus said? I came to seek and to save that which was lost. He crawled under the bed where we were, lost and separated from the Father. In fact, the Scripture says that in the fullness of time, God sent him underneath the bed at the right time. For what reason? To redeem us who are under the law, that idea is those, the Jews as well as us, who know the Ten Commandments and we violated them. And we're under not only the rules, but we are under the punishment of breaking those rules. We've lied. We've cheated. We may have disobeyed parents. We may have stolen. We may have put other gods. We may have used the Lord's name in vain. And as a result of breaking those simple Ten Commandments, there's a punishment. We're under that law that demands that there's a penalty for the sins that we have done. But he came so that he could redeem us from that penalty and make us his children, adopt us, to take us when we are feeling like we are helpless and hopeless and we don't even know what the future may hold when we die. He says, I'll make you my children. That's why we read in Scripture that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish under the penalty of of consequence of sin. Should not perish but have everlasting life. God sent not his son into the world to condemn us but that the world, us, we might be saved through him. That's why we read in scripture it says that Jesus is the only one who could do this. He's the only sinless human being that could take our punishment so he is the way, the truth, and the life. None of us get to the Father by any other means. No baptism, no church going, no, not even going to church on Christmas. Not even doing some special gifts. And charity is great and kindness is great and wishing Merry Christmas is great. That's not getting us to heaven. Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the only one. That's why scripture says there's, there, neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other name amongst men whereby we must be saved. You don't get into heaven by the name of being a Baptist or a Catholic or a Lutheran or a Methodist or an American or take your family name. The only way we get into heaven is through Jesus Christ who is Emmanuel, God in the flesh, who came and gave his life so we could have forgiveness. 
You must trust him. He's Emmanuel. Not a church, not a preacher, not baptism. Jesus is Emmanuel. Come in the flesh to rescue you. When we did my dad's funeral this past year, my brother gave a fabulous message. Fabulous. And when he gave the message, he used an illustration. My brother is a real football fan. You would never guess what team he cheers for. He lives in Minnesota. Is that a clue? Okay. He is a rabid Vikings fan. And so he told about when he, for the first time in his life, got to go a couple years ago to a Vikings game. He thought he was going to heaven. Not really, but you know what I mean. He was so excited. And he told in, in, the, in the funeral message about this idea of how thrilled he was. He put on all the Viking clothing. He was so excited. And he had gotten his ticket, ticket weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks beforehand. And he got there and there's the stadium. Mecca. The Viking stadium. And he was so thrilled. He was awestruck. And all these people who were wise and smart going in to cheer for the Vikings. I know I'm making some of you really nauseous right now. but So he said we were, there was this crowd. And he said when we got to the door, he said, I couldn't get in without a ticket. I could have argued with the guy, I love the Vikings. It wouldn't have gotten him in. I'm dressed in Vikings paraphernalia. It wouldn't have gotten him in. I'm with all these people who love the Vikings. It wouldn't have gotten him in. He could have sat there and said, I even give to the charities that the Vikings promote. I know the team record. I know all 50 quarterbacks for the last 10 years. I, I know they're all, who's all on the team. I got all this information. It would never get him in unless he had the ticket. I don't mean to demean Jesus Christ, but in just a parallel, you ain't getting into heaven without Jesus Christ. He is the only way. He is the only way. And can I tell you something else about Emmanuel? Not only was he God in the flesh come to save us from our sins, but when we think about what he said in that prophecy as it is quoted in Matthew chapter 1 and further, he came to rescue people of all nations. This is so important for you and me. The reason I say this is important is, follow me, when it was first stated, the message was given to what people? What sign, what group was going to get the sign? the Jewish people. He was going to save his people from their sins. We read about that. Even when, when John the Baptist's birth and there's the celebration and, and the angel spoke to his parents and his dad says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He has visited and redeemed his people. And then we understand, even though that they're celebrating and it's this Jewish celebration and their hope, the idea that Jesus is interested in the world came out that very first Christmas. When the angels come and they see the shepherds and they yell out and they call out, glory to God, and what? And we go, he says, and on earth. On earth, not just on Israel. It's on earth. That's why I'm, I'm, I, I can't urge you enough 
This Jesus who came in the flesh, initially in the, to the Jewish people, this Jesus came to rescue not only them, but us. That's why you need to believe on him. You need to trust him for your salvation. Not your church, not your preacher, not your good works. You need to trust in Emmanuel. But let me take it a step further. Emmanuel means this as well. He is ever-present all the time with his, chi- with his children. It, in the Bible, we have this idea that Ahaz was thinking, oh, my trials, God's not here, God's not here, God's here. God's here, Ahaz. He's still here. He hasn't deserted the nation. And he's always with us. Jesus has promised that when he came in the flesh, before he went back to heaven, he said, I will always be with you. You read this in Scripture. You read the idea, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. You read in Scripture, he says, where two or three are gathered, I am in the midst. What's he talking about? Where is he right now? He's not, is he sitting here in the room? Not physically, but he's here. He's sitting in many of you in this room. We hope all of you in this room. What do we mean by that? Because that last night that Jesus is teaching, he said, I will not leave you orphaned. I am going to come to you. Well, how did he come to them after he died and rose again and came back, but then he ascended into heaven? This is how he came to us and to us in this time. I will pray the Father and he shall give you one just like me. One just like me, a comforter. Somebody who will abide with you and in you forever. It is the Spirit of God Almighty, the Spirit of Jesus Christ. It is the Holy Spirit and God is with us, Emmanuel, all the time if we are believers in Jesus Christ. There's no place we can go, there's no problem that we face that he isn't with us. Which brings us to this idea, Emmanuel, he's with us all the time. We are never, ever alone, orphaned, or deserted. Emmanuel means this. It means that he is with us to assist us in any trial or trouble we face. Go to Hebrews, please. Hebrews as we wrap up. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2 is all about Jesus Christ and his greatness and talks about and says this is why he came in the flesh. This is why he's Emmanuel. And it walks all the way through that he is the only one who can save. He had to shed his blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. But then in Hebrews 2, which is so important for us who are his children, who are believers, who those of us who have put faith in Christ and become born again, we read these words. Verse 17, wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be laid, made like unto us, physically, come in the flesh, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. So he has helped us to be reconciled to God. Remember that word we talked about reconciliation when we did the book of Colossians? Breaking down the wall, the barrier that separates us from God. Our sin is broken down. Our punishment is taken away. And now we have fellowship with God. Jesus made reconciliation. He is the one that broke down the wall. His life, his death, his resurrection was that which provides us the opportunity to now go to God in prayer face to face. He had tore the temple curtain in two so we now can go into the Holy of Holies. We know that we're going to be in heaven, not because of our goodness, but because of the grace and goodness of Jesus Christ. 
He has reconciled us. But that's not where the chapter ends. Talking about him in the flesh, Emmanuel. Notice the next verse. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted also. What's that mean? What's that mean? That's one of those old English words that gives us difficulty. But the word sucker is two words. It means this. Cry and run. The two words put together is somebody running when we cry. The idea is when that child at night is fearful. That child of yours or grandchild, when we have the kids stay over now, when the grandkids, if in the middle of the night, if I hear, Papa, Papa, Things are different with grandkids than kids, yes? Yes, no? Okay, my kids say, you treat the grandkids different. You let the grandkids do stuff that we never could do. It's true. That's true. When our kids would cry in the middle of the night, Dad, Dad, my response was, Deb, 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 the kids are calling you. Now, when the grandkids cry, Papa, Papa, I have to race her. (laughs) No, it's not true. She doesn't move. I just get up and I go. (laughs) They call, I run, even if it's in the middle of the night. Why? Because I spoil them, I care for them. What's this passage saying? Jesus runs to you when you call. When you call, when you are suffering, when you are tempted to do right, to do wrong because of the trials, when you face difficulties, you cry and Emmanuel responds. Why? God with us. Look at the passage. Look at the description of Emmanuel. It says he's merciful and faithful. He isn't cruel. He isn't trying to have trials in your life to hurt you. He's doing it to help you. For all things work together for good. Look at the passage. He suffered too. He knows what it's like. He understands rejection. He understands loneliness. He understands death of a loved one. He understands family hassle and and ridicule. He understands friends turning their back on you. He understands where there's pressure from the authorities wanting to do things you don't want to do, he understands. He's been there. He's done that. The passage says that he was tempted in all points later on, like as we are. He understands the battles you have with temper and wanting to give in. He understands the struggles you face with getting, getting uh, impatient or, or wanting to just all of a sudden just give in the towel. He understands there was temptation, but he didn't give in. But he understands what you're going through. And what he's doing in Hebrews 2, when he's talking about Emmanuel, he's encouraging us to do the same thing that Emmanuel does every time. Trust him. Trust him. Trust him. Rely upon him. Trust him. You could go with me to the hospital this week. He could go visit some of the heroes of the, of the faith who worship with us. He could go and you could spend time with somebody this week that we had, I had the opportunity to spend time with who was told you probably aren't going to survive COVID. We could put you on a ventilator and if we do it probably won't do any good. 
You could go with me and you could hear through the coughing, through hard breathing. I want God's will to be done. In the middle of illness, and I walk out and my heart is challenged, do I trust that way with little things? We could go and we could drive out to Pittsburgh and stand outside the children's hospital. And we could see other heroes of the faith that worship with us. A 14-year-old young lady having to have cancer surgery. Her attitude is we're trusting the Lord. Comments this week is from the parents, this has been the hardest week in our life. But we're trusting the Lord. And I get upset over glasses. We have heroes of the faith that worship with us that are told you only have weeks to months to live. And the response is, we're going to trust the Lord. The story that I want to share as I close is from this gal, Taylor Caldwell. She went through what some of you have done. All of a sudden, a broken home, broken marriage, she's left to take care of her child, a little girl. She tried to get a job, she could get one. She had her apartment, used up most of her funds to get the apartment, to get herself situated, get some groceries. And then she went into the job market. And she's trying time and time again as she writes, trying to get a job, trying to get a job, trying to get a job. And she wrote about the time that there was one time she took the streetcar across the city to get a job away on the other side of town is the only thing that she was getting her hands on. It wasn't like now where everybody's hiring. This was years ago, and she goes across town, and it's a rainy day, and it's pouring down, and she did the job interview. It didn't pan out. She's back in the streetcar, and she's soaked from the rain, and she sees on the bench across from her, she sees an umbrella, and her first thought is, somebody left it? Well, finders keepers, and as she grabs the umbrella, she says, it was beautiful. It was even like a silver handle on it, and she says, hey, this thing's worth money. And when she looked closer, it was a nice umbrella. It even had the name and phone number of the person on it. And so she took the umbrella, got off the streetcar, and she first thing she did is headed for, some of you won't know what, these, what this is, but a phone booth. Okay. <laughs> she went to a phone booth and she called the gal. And the gal was so excited that somebody would return the umbrella. She got the address, and she went straight there. She forgot about her job hunting, went over to visit this lady, this older lady. And as she brought the umbrella in, they sat down, they talked. She found out that this older lady said to her, she said, that umbrella was the last gift my parents gave me before they died. So it really has great value. But I'm a teacher that goes from school to school in junior college level, and I do lectures. And I had done a lecture a year ago, and I had my umbrella propped right there at the door by the classroom where I was doing a lecture, and somebody took it. And I haven't seen it. And I'm amazed that it shows up a year later and it's still in good condition. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Can I give you a reward for bringing it back? And Taylor's thinking, I could use the money, but no. Your joy is enough of a reward. And so they exchanged more pleasantries, apparently exchanged names and addresses, and Taylor left. Over the next few months, she's looking for jobs, and all she can get is temporary jobs, here and there, nothing permanent. And it's getting closer to Christmas. She saved up enough money to buy just a gift or two for her daughter. But then all of a sudden, the job ended. A couple weeks before Christmas, and the money's running out. She doesn't have much money now to pay the next month's rent, 
She doesn't have much to have for a Christmas dinner. She surely can't buy any more presents. She even went down at the end of the street and begged for a Charlie Brown Christmas tree that nobody would take, and they gave her that. But here she is now, Christmas Eve, and she's walking back to the apartment, forlorn, feeling lonely. It's just a miserable, weathery day. And she walks up to the apartment. She stops at the mailbox. She gets it out, and guess what's in the mailbox? Bills. You wanted something nice, didn't you? There was bills. There was two other envelopes, but they looked very official and the same thing. So she's walking up the steps and she's saying, this is going to be the worst Christmas. This is horrible. Lord, where are you? She walks in the door and her daughter's so excited. It's Christmas Eve and her daughter even set the table and we don't have enough food to put on all the platters. And she sat down and she says, even though my daughter was enthusiastic, I felt so discouraged at that moment. My daughter's enthusiasm wasn't even contagious to change me. And then there's a knock at the door. And her daughter said, I'll get the door, I'll get the door. And then she heard as her daughter opened the door, there's a man's voice. And he's making a delivery. And so she steps out and says, what's this? And he says, there's several packages here for you. And she says, I didn't order anything. You know, it's not mine. He says, well, this is your name and this is your address. They're yours. And the guy left and she and her daughter looking at this and her daughter's excited and says, mommy, what are we going to do? Well, I guess we open them. And they open them and there's presents for the little girl. And there's some clothing that is about Taylor's size. She is absolutely floored that somebody would send this. She's looking for a note and all she can find is a name and underneath the name California. But she remembered the name. It was the school teacher whose umbrella she had returned. She was so excited. She was so thrilled that all of a sudden this was exciting. And her daughter says, well, what else? Well, let's let's make the meal and let's do those things. And she's just enthusiastic and thinking this is really neat. This is exciting. And then she looks at the bills and she sees those two envelopes that looked official. And she thought, well, I better, you know, look at the bad news. And she opens them. And in the first envelope... It is from a company that she worked for for several weeks in the summertime and it said, this is the Christmas bonus that you should get this year. Do you know what? It was the exact amount of the rent that was due in two weeks. Then she opened up the other envelope and when she opened up the other envelope it was a job offer from a job that wanted her to start the day after Christmas for permanent with all the benefits. She writes as she's had Experience, she writes and makes these comments as she concludes. She says, I sat with a letter in my hand and the check on the table before me. I think it was the most joyous moment of my life up to that moment. The church bells rang. My daughter and I hurriedly, we ran down to the street. Everywhere there were people walking towards the church to celebrate the birth of of the Savior. People smiled at me. I smiled back. The sky had, had all of a sudden become starry. The storm clouds had passed. And somebody yelled out, The Lord is born. Someone began to sing, Come all ye faithful. She says, I joined in singing with all these strangers all about me. And I thought, I am not all alone. I was never all alone. And that, of course, is one of the greatest messages of Christmas to us believers. We are never alone. 
Not when the night is the darkest, the wind is the coldest, the world seemingly most indifferent. For this is still the time that God says, my name is Emmanuel. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you that you are with us. Thank you that you are with us enough that you will forgive us our sins. You will make us your children if we call upon you. Thank you that you are here for us through thick and thin, through trials, through difficulties. Thank you. Thank you for making it so simple that even a child can understand we need Jesus. And once we call upon him, he will never leave us nor forsake us. Thank you, Emmanuel. Thank you for your grace, for your love, for your presence. Thank you for coming to this earth, crawling under the bed with us. Thank you, Emmanuel. Thank you for being our friend, our Savior, our Lord. With your hearts bowed as well as your heads and your eyes, I would ask you at this moment, have you ever, ever called upon Jesus Christ to be your Savior? Have you ever yet asked Him to forgive you of all your sins, past, present, and future, and asked Him to give you the gift of eternal life? You could do that right now. Right now as you sit in that pew, if you do not recall a time where you asked Christ to give you the gift of eternal life, do it right now. Ask Him to forgive you of all your sins, the sins that He paid for, that He suffered for on the cross, the sins that He is anxious to take away from you and to give you eternal life. Pray to Him right now. Pray and ask for that forgiveness. With repentance, ask Him to give you the gift of eternal life. If you have questions about that, we'll be hanging around here up towards the front before we start setting up for tonight's ministry. But we'll gladly answer your questions. We'll gladly pray with you if you want to pray with somebody. But God, thank you so much for these folk. Help more of our family and friends this evening to hear about Emmanuel. Bless the ministry as many here are participating. Others are going to bring guests and give us a great day where we honor Jesus Christ to the best of our abilities. We praise you, Emmanuel. Amen.